Welcome to the Underclass Podcast with Austin Picard. I'm an independent researcher who can't stomach being lied to on a daily basis by the mainstream media. While we live in a fracturing society, launched into parallel realities, falling perfectly onto the two sides of the political spectrum, I remain in the underclass. This week, we walk the fine line between religion and politics. A line strategically blurred over time with the intention of ethically sequestering a vital sect of society, blindly subservient to the state. What better way to consolidate power than to convince your subordinates that God is the state? Generations of fundamentalist believers deceived and corrupted through sophisticated methods of predictive programming and deliberate misinterpretation. Modern-day apartheid, colonialization, barbaric war crimes and ethnic cleansing, disguised and justified as divine prophecy, required by God to facilitate the impending rapture. Righteousness cannot be achieved through reflexive moral indignation. We must pierce through the fog of war and reject these double standards once and for all. No longer can we allow political despots to achieve their goals by relying on the ignorance of the uninformed while hiding behind the cloak of religious deception, masquerading as staunch believers themselves. A complicated conflict sold to the public as an ancient feud, playing out in its modern form that only divine intervention could potentially solve. A purely religious dispute, going back thousands of years with no concise explanation to be found in the annals of history. However, our story seems to describe a much darker, more convoluted version of events, leading us to our predestined outcome the consequence and moral hazard of the perpetuating cycle found all throughout history, described by Brazilian philosopher and educator Paulo Freire as the oppressed, instead of striving for liberation, tend themselves to become oppressors. Many people believe that the conflict between Israel and Palestine should be traced all the way back to the Torah of Moses which functions as the first five books of the Old Testament, referred to as the Hebrew Bible, and includes the story of Abram and Sarai circumventing God's covenant with Abraham. Many will point to the troubled history throughout the region, filled with violent conquests and bloody religious crusades as one of the leading factors driving this modern conflict. The officially accepted version of the history of Israel covers an area of the southern Levant also known as Canaan, Palestine, or the Holy Land, which is the geographical location of the modern states of Israel and Palestine, all the way from the Bronze Age with the development of the Canaanite civilization to the Iron Age, when the kingdoms of Israel and Judah were established entities that were central to the origins of the Jewish and Samaritan peoples, as well as the Abrahamic faith tradition. This gave rise to Judaism, Samaritanism, Christianity, Islam, Druzism, Baha'ism, and a variety of other religious movements. This land known as ancient Palestine 
has come under the control of various ethnic groups throughout the course of human history. In the following centuries, the Assyrian, Babylonian, and Persian empires conquered the region. And according to the book, Identity and Territory, Jewish Perceptions of Space and Antiquity, with the establishment of the Hasmonean dynasty, the local Jewish population maintained independence for a century before being incorporated into the Roman Republic. Following the first and second centuries Jewish-Roman wars, many Jews were killed, violently displaced, or sold into slavery as a result of large-scale revolts by the Jews of Judea in the eastern Mediterranean against the Roman Empire. The historical context of this geographical region continues on through the advent of Christianity adopted by the Greco-Roman world under the influence of the Roman Empire, shifting the demographics in the region towards newfound Christians, replacing Jews as the majority of the population by the 4th century. However, shortly after Islam was consolidated across the Arabian Peninsula under Muhammad, Byzantine Christian rule over the land of Israel was superseded by the Arab conquest of the Levant in the 7th century. Violent religious crusades swept over the region from the 11th to the 13th century until the area became subject to the Mongol invasions and conquests, which were locally routed by the Mamluk Empire that ruled Egypt and the Levant from the mid-13th to early 16th centuries, when the Mamluks were eventually defeated by the Ottoman Empire, becoming a religiously diverse Ottoman province where Jews, Muslims, and Christians coexisted for over 400 years until the 20th century. As important as it is to at least have some frame of reference providing a working knowledge of the ancient history in this region, our modern conflict has been intentionally misrepresented as an ancient religious dispute with divine consequences by a radical nationalist movement that emerged as recent as the 19th century to espouse support for the establishment of a homeland for the Jewish people in Palestine. Zionism is far from a peaceful, God-fearing ideology. Most early Zionists weren't even religious. There were secular European Jews or atheists, including the founder of the modern Zionist movement himself, Theodore Herzl who in his 1896 pamphlet, Der Judenstaat, he envisioned the founding of what they called a future independent Jew state during the 20th century. This Jewish nationalist political ideology was a response to the newest wave of rising anti-Semitism following the period known as the Jewish Enlightenment throughout the late 1700s into the late 1800s, with horrific stories of Eastern European Jews targeted by pogroms in the newly acquired Russian territories with large Jewish populations from the Polish-Lithuanian Commonwealth and the Ottoman Empire from 1772 to 1815. The use of the term pogrom became common in the English language after a large-scale wave of anti-Jewish riots swept through southwestern Imperial Russia modern-day Ukraine and Poland, from 1881 to 1882, when more than 200 anti-Jewish events occurred in the Russian Empire 
changing perception among Russian Jews and indirectly giving a significant boost to the early Zionist movement. According to the book, The Revolution of 1905 in Odessa, Blood on the Steps, Robert Weinberg writes that a much bloodier wave of pogroms broke out from 1903 to 1906, leaving an estimated 2,000 Jews dead and many more wounded as the Jews took to arms to defend their families and property from the attackers. The 1905 pogrom against Jews in Odessa was the most serious pogrom of the period, with reports of approximately 400 Jews killed. The New York Times described the first Kishinev pogrom of Easter 1903. The anti-Jewish riots in Kishinev, Bessarabia, modern Moldova, are worse than the censor will permit to publish. There was a well-laid-out plan for the general massacre of Jews on the day following the Orthodox Easter. The mob was led by priests, and the general cry, Kill the Jews, was taken up all over the city. The Jews were taken wholly unaware and were slaughtered like sheep. The dead number 120 and the injured about 500. The scenes of horror attending this massacre are beyond description. Babies were literally torn to pieces by the frenzied and bloodthirsty mob. The local police made no attempt to check the reign of terror. At sunset, the streets were piled with corpses and wounded. Those who could make their escape fled in terror, and the city is now practically deserted of Jews. This type of ruthless persecution would lead any people to seek refuge. Yet many Jews at this time, including the most religious sect of Jewish people, the Orthodox, who claimed that only God could lead the people back to the Holy Land and reform the state of Israel, were vocally against the formation of a Jewish state and preferred the process of assimilation, hoping to further discourage the concept of dual loyalty. This is the environment in the late 1800s, an environment of constant anti-Semitism, fear, and violence. And after the series of pogroms in the Russian Empire in conjunction with Tsar Alexander of Russia's anti-Semitic May Laws of 1882, prompted mass immigration of Jews from the Russian Empire. By July 6th of 1882, the first group of Bilu pioneers immigrated from Russia and arrived in Ottoman Palestine, attempting to use farming societies as a way to relieve Jewish economical and social tensions from the Pale of Settlement. A Jewish movement known as Bilu, its members were known as Beluam, and the movement sought to inspire Jews to migrate to Ottoman Palestine. According to Chaim Hassin in the Herzl Press, as of 1882, there were 525 members in the Bilu movement, all of whom were controlled by the Kharkiv Group, or the Central Bureau, who controlled the affairs of all Bilu pioneers until all members were brought to Jaffa. The group aimed to set up a model settlement for all Jewry. The Beluam issued a manifesto addressed to the scattered Jews of Europe. It begins by recalling biblical mythology of the Hebrew people in the land of Israel, 
reminding them of the suffering and persecution the Jewish people have been forced to endure for so many years. The manifesto continues on by issuing a call to action, stating, This spark is again kindling and will shine for us, a true pillar of fire going before us on the road to Zion. While behind us is a pillar of cloud, a pillar of oppression threatening to destroy us. Sleepest thou, O our nation? What hast thou been doing until 1882? Sleeping and dreaming the false dream of assimilation. Now thank God thou art awakened from thy slothful slumber. The pogroms have awakened thee from thy charmed sleep. Thine eyes are opened to recognize the cloudy delusive hopes. Canst thou listen silently to the taunts and mockeries of thine enemies? Where is thy ancient pride, thine olden spirit? Remember that thou wast a nation possessing a wise law, a religion, a constitution, a celestial temple whose wall is still a silent witness to the glories of the past. That thy sons dwelt in palaces and towers, and thy cities flourished in the splendor of civilization, while these enemies of thine dwelt like beasts in the muddy marshes of their dark woods. While thy children were clad in purple and fine linen, they wore the rough skins of the wolf and the bear. Art thou not ashamed? It goes on to explain that they intend to ask the permission of the Ottoman Empire to settle on a small strip of land on the eastern shore of the Mediterranean that the Romans had called Palestine. They even stated their intention was to beg it of the Sultan himself, and if it be impossible to obtain this, to beg that we may at least possess it as a state within a larger state, the internal administration to be ours, to have our civil and political rights, and to act with the Turkish Empire only in foreign affairs so as to help our brother Ishmael in his time of need. If you have not yet noticed, we should pause to point out the Jewish perception in 1882 is not that the Arabs and the Muslims are the enemy, but the Europeans and the Russians are the enemies they're referring to. The clad and the rough skins of the wolf and the bear and running through the dark woods like savages. Our brother Ishmael is referred to as a friend. The implication in regard to this conflict is commonly reduced to thousands of years of ethnic and religious hatred between Muslims and Jews, with no identifiable reason or solution on the horizon. Yet with any real honest effort to objectively pursue an explanation, that's clearly proven to be false. There is significant evidence pointing to the fact that over the last millennia, Jews and Muslims actually got on quite well. And according to the history book, O Jerusalem, published in 1971, with few exceptions, the Jewish people had dwelt in relative security among the Arabs over the centuries. The golden age of the diaspora had come in the Spain of the Caliphs, and the Ottoman Turks had welcomed the Jews when the doors of much of Europe were closed to them. The ghastly chain of crimes perpetrated on the Jewish people culminating in the crematoriums of Germany, had been inflicted on them by the Christian nations of Europe, not those of the Islamic East. The unfortunate reality we face reveals the true depth of knowledge and lack of effort by the general public to ever take the necessary steps 
of rigorously educating themselves before blindly following the collective nature of identity politics. This conflict has been deliberately misrepresented to infuse religious fervor and extinguish intellectual discernment due to the fact that there was significant support from a small group of prominent British evangelical Protestants promoting this idea of a return to the Jewish homeland, many Orthodox Jews suspected a hidden element of anti-Semitism behind the ultimate decision to pursue an independent state in the Middle East in order to conveniently expel European Jews. There is a cause to this conflict and its point of origin is much more recent than anyone would like to admit. In 1896, the father of Zionism, Theodor Herzl, published the pamphlet Der Judenstadt, in which he wrote, The Jewish question exists wherever Jews live in perceptible numbers. Where it does not exist, it is carried by Jews in the course of their migrations. We naturally move to those places where we are not persecuted, and there our presence produces persecution. This is the case in every country, and will remain so even in those most highly civilized, France itself being no exception, till the Jewish question finds a solution on a political basis. The unfortunate Jews are now carrying anti-Semitism into England. They have already introduced it into America. I believe that I understand anti-Semitism, which is really a highly complex movement. I consider it from a Jewish standpoint, yet without fear or hatred. I believe that I can see what elements there are in it of vulgar sport, of common trade jealousy, of inherited prejudice, of religious intolerance, and also of pretended self-defense. We have honestly endeavored everywhere to merge ourselves in the social life of surrounding communities and to preserve only the faith of our fathers. It has not been permitted to us. In vain are we loyal patriots, our loyalty in some places running to extremes. In vain do we make the same sacrifices of life and property as our fellow citizens. In vain do we strive to increase the fame of our native land in science and art or her wealth by trade and commerce. In countries where we have lived for centuries, we are still cried down as strangers, and often by those whose ancestors were not yet domiciled in the land where Jews had already made experience of suffering. The majority may decide which are the strangers, for this, as indeed every point which arises in the commerce of nations, is a question of might. I do not here surrender any portion of our prescriptive right, for I am making this statement merely in my own name as an individual. In the world of today, and for an indefinite period, it will probably remain so. Might precedes right. Therefore, it is useless for us to be loyal patriots, as were the Huguenots who were forced to emigrate. If we could only be left in peace but I think we shall not be left in peace, for old prejudice against us still lies deep in the hearts of the people. He who would have proofs of it need only listen to the people where they speak with frankness and simplicity. Proverb and fairy tale are both anti-Semitic. A nation is a great child which can certainly be educated 
but its education would, even in most favorable circumstances, occupy such a vast amount of time that we could, as already mentioned, remove our own difficulties by other means long before the process was accomplished. No one can deny the gravity of the Jews' situation. Attacks in parliaments, in assemblies, in the press, in the pulpit, in the streets, on journeys, for example, their exclusion from certain hotels, even in places of recreation, become daily more numerous. The forums of persecution, varying according to the countries in which they occur. In Russia, impositions are levied on Jewish villages. In Romania, a few human beings are put to death. In Germany, they get a good beating when the occasion serves. In Austria, anti-Semites exercise terrorism over all public life. In Paris, they are shut out of the so-called best social circles and excluded from clubs. Shades of anti-Jewish feeling are innumerable. But this is not to be an attempt to make out a doleful category of Jewish hardships. It is futile to linger over details, however painful they may be. I do not intend to awaken sympathetic emotions on our behalf. That would be a foolish, futile, and undignified proceeding. I shall content myself with putting the following questions to the Jews. Is it true that in countries where we live in perceptible numbers, the position of Jewish lawyers, doctors, men of science, teachers, and officials of all descriptions becomes daily more intolerable? True that the Jewish middle classes are seriously threatened. True that the passions of the mob are incited against our wealthy representatives. True that our poor endure greater sufferings than any other proletariat. I think that this external pressure makes itself felt everywhere. In our upper classes, it causes unpleasantness. In our middle classes, continual and grave anxieties. In our lower classes, absolute despair. Every nation in whose midst Jews live is either covertly or openly anti-Semitic. The Christian bourgeoisie would not be unwilling to cast us as a sacrifice to socialism, though that would not greatly improve matters. At the same time, the equal rights of Jews before the law cannot be withdrawn where they have once been conceded, not only because their withdrawal would be opposed to the spirit of our age, but also because it would immediately drive all Jews, rich and poor alike, into the ranks of the revolutionary party. Nothing effectual can really be done to our inquiry. In old days, our jewels were seized. How is our movable property to be got hold of now? It is comprised in printed papers which are scattered over the world, locked up, maybe in the coffers of Christians. It is of course possible to get its shares and debentures in railways, banks and industrial concerns of all descriptions by taxation and where the progressive income tax is in force. All our property can eventually be laid hold of. But all these efforts cannot be directed against Jews alone and where they have nevertheless been made, severe economic crises with far-reaching effects have been their immediate consequence. 
The very impossibility of getting at the Jews nourishes and embitters hatred of them. Anti-Semitism increases day by day and hour by hour among the nations. Indeed, it is bound to increase because the causes of its growth continue to exist and cannot be removed. Its remote cause is our loss of the power of assimilation during the Middle Ages. Its immediate cause is our excessive production of mediocre intellects who cannot find an outlet downwards or upwards, that is to say, no wholesome outlet in either direction. When we sink, we become a revolutionary proletariat, the subordinate officers of the revolutionary party. When we rise, there rises also our terrible power of the purse. In 1896, Palestine was not chosen because it was the ancient homeland of the Jewish people. It was only in consideration at this time. Herzl grappled with this in the manifesto, writing, Should the powers declare themselves willing to admit our sovereignty over a neutral piece of land, then the society will enter into negotiations for the possession of this land. Here, two territories come under consideration, Palestine and Argentine. In both countries, important experiments in colonization have been made, though on the mistaken principle of a gradual infiltration of Jews. An infiltration is bound to end in disaster. It continues until the inevitable moment when the native population feels itself threatened and forces the government to stop a further influx of Jews. Immigration is consequently futile unless based on an assured supremacy. The society of Jews will treat with the present masters of the land, putting itself under the protectorate of the European powers if they prove friendly to the plan. Shall we choose Palestine or Argentina? We shall take what is given us and what is selected by Jewish public opinion. The society will settle both these points. The process of colonialization and nation-building had been the status quo during the late 1800s, and in the minds of certain Europeans at this time, the hundreds of thousands of native Arabs who had been living in the area for centuries was of little concern. From 1897 to 1948, the primary goal of the Zionist movement was to establish the basis for a Jewish homeland in Palestine, and thereafter, to consolidate it. In what Niels Butenschen kindly described as a unique variation of the principle of self-determination, the Lovers of Zion, which was one of a variety of proto-Zionist organizations founded in 1881 in response to the anti-Jewish pogroms in the Russian Empire, united in 1884. And in 1897, the world's first Zionist Congress was organized by Theodor Herzl, as the supreme organ of the Zionist organization and its legislative authority. At the Sixth World Zionist Congress in Basel, Switzerland in 1903, Theodore Herzl presented what was called the Uganda Scheme, which had been proposed to Herzl by British colonist Joseph Chamberlain, colonial secretary in Balfour's cabinet, to create a Jewish homeland in a portion of the British colony in East Africa. Arthur Balfour, also known as Lord Balfour, was a British statesman and conservative politician who served as Prime Minister of the United Kingdom from 1902 to 1905. 
Zionist leader Chaim Weizmann, later president of the World Zionist Organization and first president of Israel, moved from Switzerland to the UK in 1904 and met Arthur Balfour in a session arranged by Charles Dreyfus, his Jewish constituency representative. According to the book Balfour and Weissman, The Zionist, The Zealot, and the Emergence of Israel, by January 1914, Weissman first met Baron Edmund de Rothschild, a member of the French branch of the Rothschild family and a leading proponent of the Zionist movement. The Baron was not part of the World Zionist Organization, but had funded the Jewish agricultural colonies of the first Aliyah and transferred them to the Jewish Colonization Association in 1899. Jonathan Schneer explains in his book, The Balfour Declaration, The Origins of the Arab-Israeli Conflict, that this connection was to bear fruit later that year when the Baron's son, James de Rothschild, requested a meeting with Weissman on November 25, 1914, to enlist him in influencing those deemed to be receptive within the British government to their agenda of a Jewish state in Palestine. You see, earlier that year, in July 1914, war broke out in Europe between the Triple Entente, comprising the nations of Britain, France, and the Russian Empire, and the Central Powers, Germany, Austria-Hungary, and later that year, the Ottoman Empire. Officially, the British cabinet first discussed Palestine at a meeting on November 9, 1914, four days after Britain's declaration of war on the Ottoman Empire, of which the Mutasarafayat of Jerusalem, often referred to as Palestine. Historian Sahar Khanaidi crucially points out the disingenuous negotiations held with Hussein bin Ali, the Sharif of Mecca, in late 1915, when the British High Commissioner to Egypt, Henry McMahon, exchanged at least ten letters with him, in which he promised Hussein to recognize Arab independence in the limits and boundaries proposed by the Sharif of Mecca, in return for Hussein launching a revolt against the Ottoman Empire. At this time, Arab nationalism was on the rise, and many Palestinians were seeking an independent state outside the control of the Ottoman Empire. And on the basis of the quid pro quo agreement and the correspondence, the Arab Revolt was launched on June 5, 1916. This was depicted in the 1962 film Lawrence of Arabia, when a British army lieutenant is sent to help the Arabs commit acts of terrorism in order to weaken and distract the Ottoman Turks. This was an operation that the British set in motion with the promise of independence. But after the war, Balfour himself famously stated, We did not make a single promise to the Arabs that we didn't intend to break. Leading up to the infamous Balfour Declaration, globally, as of 1913, the latest known date prior to the Declaration, approximately 1% of the world's Jews belong to a Zionist organization. For the vast majority of the past four centuries, Palestine was under the control of the Ottoman Empire. The Jewish population had been a small minority, and prior to the rise of Zionism, Jews are thought to have comprised between 2% and 5% of the population of Palestine. According to Justin McCarthy, 
a demographer and former professor of history with advanced study of Ottoman statistics, claimed that the population of Palestine in the early 19th century was 350,000. In 1860, it was 411,000. And in 1900, roughly 600,000, of which 94% were reported as Arabs. A population study showing up to 472,465 citizens in what later became Mandatory Palestine accounted for 87% as Muslim, around 10% were Christians, and 3% were Jewish. Two of the 3% were foreign-born Jewish citizens. The Ottoman government in Constantinople began to apply restrictions on Jewish immigration to Palestine in late 1882 in response to the start of the first Aliyah, which was a major wave of Jewish immigration mostly from Eastern Europe and Yemen. Although the immigration was creating a certain amount of tension with the local population, in 1901, the Sublime Port, or the Ottoman Central Government, granted Jews the same rights as Arabs to buy land in Palestine, subsequently increasing the percentage of Jews in the population to rise to nearly 8% by 1914. Again referencing Jonathan Schneer's book, he writes that historians do not know whether these strengthening forces would still have ultimately resulted in conflict in the absence of the Balfour Declaration. Balfour Declaration was not in and of itself the source of trouble in a land that previously had been more or less at peace, nor was it a mere signpost on a road heading undivertedly toward a cliff. No one can say what the course of events in Palestine might have been without it. The official line states, By late 1917, in the lead-up to the Balfour Declaration, the wider war had reached a stalemate, with two of Britain's allies not fully engaged. The United States had yet to suffer a casualty, and the Russians were in the midst of a violent revolution with Bolsheviks taking over their government. The stalemate in southern Palestine was broken by the Battle of Beersheba on 31st of October 1917. The release of the final declaration was authorized on October 31st. The preceding cabinet discussion had referenced perceived propaganda benefits amongst the worldwide Jewish community for the Allied war effort. The opening words of the Declaration represented the first public expression of support for Zionism by a major political power. The Balfour Declaration was a public statement issued by the British government in 1917 during World War I, declaring its support for the establishment of a national home for the Jewish people in Palestine. The Declaration was contained in a letter dated November 2, 1917, from the United Kingdom's Foreign Secretary Arthur Balfour to Lord Rothschild, a leader of the British Jewish community, for transmission to the Zionist Federation of Great Britain and Ireland. The text of the Declaration was published in the press on November 9, 1917. Dear Lord Rothschild, I have much pleasure in conveying to you, on behalf of His Majesty's government, the following declaration of sympathy with Jewish Zionist aspirations which has been submitted to and approved by the cabinet. 
His Majesty's government view with favor the establishment in Palestine of a national home for the Jewish people and will use their best endeavors to facilitate the achievement of this object, being clearly understood that nothing shall be done which may prejudice the civil and religious rights of existing non-Jewish communities in Palestine or the rights and political status enjoyed by Jews in any other country. I should be grateful if you would bring this declaration to the knowledge of the Zionist Federation. The term national home had no precedent in international law and was intentionally vague as to whether a Jewish state was contemplated. The intended boundaries of Palestine were not specified, and the British government later confirmed that the words in Palestine meant that the Jewish national home was not intended to cover all of Palestine. The second half of the declaration was added to satisfy opponents of the policy who had claimed that it would otherwise prejudice the position of the local population of Palestine and encourage anti-Semitism worldwide by stamping the Jews as strangers in their native lands. The declaration called for safeguarding the civil and religious rights for the Palestinian Arabs, who composed the vast majority of the local population and also the rights and political status of the Jewish communities in other countries outside of Palestine. In 1939, the British government acknowledged that the local population's views should have been taken into account, and recognized in 2017 that the declaration should have called for the protection of the Palestinian Arabs' political rights. The declaration had many long-lasting consequences. It greatly increased popular support for Zionism within Jewish communities worldwide and became a core component of the British Mandate for Palestine, the founding document of Mandatory Palestine. It indirectly led to the emergence of Israel and is considered a principal cause of the ongoing Israeli-Palestinian conflict, often described as the world's most intractable conflict. Controversy remains over a number of areas such as whether the declaration contradicted earlier promises the British made to the Sharif of Mecca in the McMahon-Hussein correspondence. It was also in stark contrast to a declaration made by the British and French armies in 1918, which assured the people of Syria, Palestine, and Mesopotamia of autonomy. After the Ottoman Empire collapsed in 1918, the League of Nations gave Britain a mandate for administrative control of Palestine in 1920. It was a dual mandate. On one hand, they were to act on behalf of the Palestinians. But on the other hand, they were to act on the behalf of the international Zionist organization who wanted to establish a Jewish homeland. Britain subsequently drew up arbitrary borders transferring the eastern bank of the Jordan River to the Hashemites. It was under the British mandate that European Jews began to immigrate to Palestine and buy up land in much larger numbers. The Jewish population in Palestine grew tenfold, from 60,000 to more than 600,000 between 1918 and 1947, leaving many Palestinians and other Arab nations to view the mass influx of Jews as a European colonial movement. There will be no better time for us to transition into the role of the first radically violent Jewish paramilitary organizations or Zionist terrorist groups in mandated Palestine. Through the story of one man's life, 
we catch a glimpse at the darkness surrounding this conflict in its most defining years. Written by Hassam Abdel Karim and sourced from Al Mayadeen. Born in 1913 in Breslitovsk, Russia, modern day Belarus, Menachem Wolfovich Begin grew up in Poland, home to the world's largest Jewish population at the time, where the Zionist movement was very active in promoting the idea of a Jewish state in the Promised Land. However, the young Begin chose to join the far-right-wing branch of Zionism, later known as Revisionist Zionism, headed and inspired by another Russian-born Zionist activist, Vladimir Jabotinsky. At the age of 16, Begin joined Betar, a fascist-like youth paramilitary movement founded by Jabotinsky. In 1932, Begin became a leader in Betar and in charge of the organization department. Although Begin graduated from the University of Warsaw in 1935 with a degree in law, he never practiced the profession and remained totally focused on his Zionist career. The year 1939 was crucial in Menachem Begin's life. After the Soviet Union signed the Friendship Treaty with Nazi Germany, Stalin's security apparatus, NKVD, detained all the Zionist leaders and activists in Poland suspecting they were loyal to or agents for the British. As a prominent pre-war Zionist and reserve status officer cadet, on September 20, 1940, Begin was arrested by the NKVD and detained in the Lukics prison. In later years, he wrote about his experience of being tortured. He was accused of being an agent of British imperialism and sentenced to eight years in the Soviet gulag camps. On the 1st of June, 1941, he was sent to the Pekora labor camps in the northern part of European Russia, where he stayed until May 1942, only after the Germans invaded the Soviet Union in 1941 and the Soviet-British relations improved was Begin released. Great Britain decided to make use of the Polish army, whose country was currently under German occupation, calling upon General Vladislav Anders and its war efforts in the Middle East. British made arrangements with Stalin, and the Polish army units were evacuated from the USSR in 1942. The Anders Polish army was first sent to Iran, transferred to Iraq, and from there to Palestine where about 53,000 soldiers were regrouped. The British intention was to send them to Egypt to join the British military operations against the German forces, which were advancing from the west in Libya in the summer of 1942. These Polish detachments that arrived in Palestine were operationally subordinate to British command, and the purpose of the regrouping was to retrain them as a fighting force in North Africa and Palestine was a transit route for them. Out of these 53,000 soldiers, at least 4,300 were Jews. A significant part of these Jewish soldiers defected and decided to stay in Palestine. One of them was Menachem Begin. In Palestine, Begin wasted no time. In 1943, shortly after his desertion of the Polish army, he was appointed commander of the Irguns Vileumi, Etzel, the terrorist organization representing the revisionist Zionist Jabotinsky movement. The extreme right-wing group 
was advocating a violent version of Zionism that has no room for compromise with the Arabs. According to Ergun doctrine, Palestine is the land of the Jews only, and Arabs have to go elsewhere. Even the British got their share of Etzel's enmity. Although Great Britain was the main promoter of the Zionist project in Palestine from the beginning and issued the Balfour Declaration in 1917, promising the Zionists of a Jewish homeland in Palestine, that wasn't enough for the Irgun and Jabotinsky's heirs. The pragmatic approach of the British administration in Palestine and its maneuvering between all sides angered the Begin-led Irgun, especially when the British enforced quotas for Jewish immigrants to Palestine in order to regulate the process. In February 1944, under Begin's leadership, the Etzel called for a revolt against the British Mandate authorities and began a series of military actions which continued until 1948. During this period, Begin commanded the Etzel's operations including the bombing of the King David Hotel and occupied Al-Quds, 1946, the attacks on Acre Prison, 1947, and the assassination of the Swedish diplomat and UN mediator in Palestine, Count Bernadotte, in 1948. That led the British to put Begin on top of their most wanted list of terrorists. It was during the Arab-Israeli War of 1948 when Menachem Begin committed his most horrible crime. It was a massacre. In April 1948, Menachem Begin, accompanied by a large number of Irgun militants, entered the Arab village of Dair Yassin on the outskirts of occupied Palestine. The village was peaceful, and its inhabitants were unarmed civilians. The attackers savagely butchered at least 200 residents including women and children, blew up houses with people inside and shot people randomly. They also took captives and loaded them on trucks that drove around occupied Al-Quds in a victory parade. News about the Dair Yassin massacre spread out quickly in Palestine, causing hundreds of thousands of Palestinians from the neighboring villages to flee in fear of a similar fate. Menachem Begin never regretted the massacre, nor apologized for it. In his autobiography, The Revolt, he said that his troops who entered the village gave warnings to the Arabs, and added in cold blood, The civilians who had disregarded our warnings suffered inevitable casualties. After the declaration of the State of Israel, Menachem Begin laid down his gun and ordered his Irgun militants, along with other right-wing groups like the Stern Gang, to join the mainstream Zionist forces, the Haganah, and together they formed the Israeli Defense Forces. He established a political party, Hayrut, to reflect his extreme right and expansionist ideology. He remained the leader of the opposition for 29 years. Only in 1967, when Israel was about to launch its aggression against the Arab countries, Begin joined the National Unity Government. In 1977, Begin won the general elections in Israel under the Likud coalition and seized power. Begin's rise coincided with Egypt's President Anwar Sadat's coup against Nasserite policies and his rush toward the U.S. and Israel. 
During his negotiations with Egypt, Begin showed a great deal of stubbornness and extremism in his demands. He practically refused to offer any reasonable settlement to the Palestinian problem, apart from an autonomous region where Palestinians can take charge of health care and municipal services without any kind of sovereignty. It was only the Sadat's readiness to accept all terms imposed by Begin for the sake of Sinai Desert recovery to Egypt that made negotiations succeed. The result was a peace treaty, very advantageous to Israel, that included a nominal withdrawal from Sinai. Begin received the Nobel Prize for Peace jointly with Sadat. However, the very idea of conceding land to the Arabs was distasteful and bitter for Begin. It's true that Sinai was not a part of historical Palestine, but still, it was in Israel's possession since 1967, and in Begin's mind, what is conquered by force should remain in the hands of Jews, maintaining that Israel's borders are determined only by the reach of its army. With this ideological background, Begin decided he needed compensation, and it was Lebanon. In June 1982, only five weeks after the withdrawal of the Israeli forces from Sinai, Begin unleashed his fury on Lebanon and ordered his army to invade. The Zionist monster did not stop until he occupied Lebanon's capital and destroyed it completely. Only then, Begin felt he received the appropriate compensation for his concession in Sinai. But things didn't go the way Begin wished. A new Lebanese national resistance movement evolved and started effectively targeting the Israeli occupation army. The number of Israeli military casualties escalated over time until it reached over a thousand dead. Begin then entered a state of severe depression that made him retreat into his home for an entire week, during which he stopped attending any meetings with officials from the government to the military. Begin's psychological condition worsened while he was in isolation to the extent that he stopped shaving his beard and even eating. Everything ended when Begin sent a small message to the Israeli president consisting of a few words, I offer my resignation from the premiership. The only thing Menachem Begin did in his last days as an active politician was choosing his successor. Begin looked around to find someone who could be entrusted with keeping Israel after him. He did not find more extremist and puritanical than his old Irgun comrade, Yitzhak Shamir. So he handed him the job with one piece of advice. Don't hand over the land of Israel to the Arabs. By the end of the war in 1947, a weakened British empire terminated the mandate and withdrew ending a period of rule which began in 1917, during the First World War. On November 30, 1947, a day after the United Nations voted to adopt the Partition Plan for Palestine, 30 years of resentment between Jews and Arabs during this period of British rule spilled over. On the last day of the mandate in May of 1948, David Ben-Gurion declared the establishment of a Jewish state in Ayaretz, Israel, to be known as the State of Israel. This marked the true beginning to our modern conflict. May 14, 1948, 
known as the National Day of Israeli Independence. This day has been given another name by the Palestinians, who were violently removed from their homes or fled in terror. They refer to this day as the Nakba, which is Arabic of the disaster, catastrophe, or cataclysm, widely known as the Palestinian catastrophe, when over 700,000 Palestinians fled or were expelled. The Nakba was the primary cause of the Palestinian diaspora. At the same time, Israel was created as a Jewish homeland. The Palestinians were turned into a refugee nation with a wandering identity. In the period after the 1948 Arab-Israeli War, a large number of Palestinians attempted to return to their homes and under the protection of international law to refuse the right of return would be a human rights violation. Between 2,700 and 5,000 Palestinians were murdered by Israeli defense forces during this period. The vast majority being unarmed and intending to return for economic or social reasons. There is no perfect solution to this problem. But one thing has become quite clear. Zionism is a profoundly radical and violent political ideology intentionally blurring the line between religion and politics. A line strategically blurred over time with the intention of ethically sequestering a vital sect of society blindly subservient to the state. What better way to consolidate power than to convince your subordinates that God is the state? Generations of fundamentalist believers, deceived and corrupted through sophisticated methods of predictive programming and deliberate misinterpretation. Modern-day apartheid, colonialization, barbaric war crimes and ethnic cleansing, disguised and justified as divine prophecy required by God to facilitate the impending rapture. Righteousness cannot be achieved through reflexive moral indignation. We must pierce through the fog of war and reject these double standards once and for all. No longer can we allow political despots to achieve their goals by relying on the ignorance of the uninformed while hiding behind the cloak of religious deception, masquerading as staunch believers themselves. The consequence and moral hazard of the perpetuating cycle found all throughout history, described by Brazilian philosopher and educator Paulo Freire as the oppressed, instead of striving for liberation, tend themselves to become oppressors. Mm -hmm.